This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. The Senate message to tech CEOs today, you have blood on your hands. The lead starts right now. The heads of Facebook, TikTok, and other social media companies pummeled today with bipartisan bipartisan criticism on Capitol Hill over what the companies are and are not doing to protect your kids. What led Mark Mark Zuckerberg to stand up in the hearing and apologize? That's coming up. Plus, a Pennsylvania man accused of decapitating his father then posting a political rant online. Why was the horrifying video left up online for hours? And... We're expecting our major ruling at any moment from a judge that could come and will have serious repercussions for Donald Trump and his future. (laughs) Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with a fiery and contentious hearing on Capitol Hill as big tech CEOs faced blistering questions about what they are and are not doing to protect kids and teens. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee hearing today focused on the leaders of TikTok, Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, Snap, which owns Snapchat, and Discord, an online messaging app. They were all pressed on their policies for dealing with cyberbullying, adult content, posts around self-harm, predators, and the role that they allow parents to play in what their kids interact with. And one of the most striking moments of the day, Facebook creator Mark Zuckerberg was pushed by Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley to apologize to the many families in the hearing room, some of whose children were bullied or sexually exploited, even pushed to suicide because of content on social media. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing extremely efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. CNN's Tom Foreman dives into the most contentious moments from today's hearing. Your product is killing people. Will you set up a victim's compensation fund with your money, the money you made on these families sitting behind you? Yes or no? Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, whose company owns Instagram, pushed into apologizing to families who say they were harmed by online content. Some waving pictures of children who died or killed themselves. It was an astonishing moment, yet the billionaire head of Meta dug in anyway. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing these streaming efforts to make sure that 
no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. Your platforms really suck at policing themselves. Against a torrent of accusations from the Senate committee about enabling sexual exploitation, election meddling, fake news, drug abuse, and child endangerment, the heads of five tech giants tried to push back. We very much believe that this content is disgusting. X will be active and a part of this solution. But the fury kept coming in a rare show of unity between Democrats one-third of fentanyl cases investigated over five months had direct ties to social media. And Republicans. 37% of teenage girls between 13 and 15 were exposed to unwanted nudity in a week on Instagram. You knew about it. Who did you fire? Senator, this is why we're building all Who these tools. Who did you tools. fire? I'm, I'm not going to answer that. There was plenty of heat to go around as the tech bosses were scorched with claims their products promote anxiety, depression, and violence, especially among young people. Children are not your priority. Children are your product. But no one was hit harder than Zuckerberg, whose attempts at defense at times were literally laughed at. My understanding is that we don't allow sexually explicit content uh, on, on the service for people of any age. How is that going? Uh, you know, our... our uh... Is there any one of you willing to say now that you support this bill? Many of the lawmakers are intent on overturning a long-standing federal law that immunizes those companies from lawsuits over user-generated content and putting tough regulations in place. It's time to actually pass them. And the reason they haven't passed is because of the power of your company. So let's be really, really clear about that. And while the tech bosses say they're happy to work on safeguards... But you have blood on your hands. Skepticism ran rampant. Nothing will change until the courtroom door is open to victims of social media. I have rarely, Jake, ever seen this kind of show in a Senate hearing. There was complete unanimity in going after these companies. And the lawmakers this time, who in the past have sometimes seen befuddled by big tech, this time were really saying, in effect, we know what suffering is. We know what targeting is. We know what turning a blind eye is. And one of them said at one point, I may not know about tech, but I know how to count votes, and you're on the wrong side of it. I think, Jake, the odds of some kind of legislation passing just went way up. Yeah, the idea that they can be trusted to regulate themselves seems to have been a, a thing of days past. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Uh, let's talk right now with Maureen Molak. She's the co-founder of Parents for Safe Online Spaces and founder of the David's Legacy Foundation. And, and Maureen, let's start with David. Your son, David, he was 16. He died by suicide after months of cyberbullying. It's something that anybody who has teenagers uh, or even younger kids in this day and age knows uh, that that's a very real risk and a very real fear. And I'm so sorry for your loss. And I admire you trying to turn the loss into something to protect my kids and, and the kids of those watching right now. As you just heard, Senator Graham started the hearing out calling out the tech CEO saying they have blood on their hands. Do you see it that way? Absolutely. And every single family that was with me, it's something that we have all said. And we were glad to hear it come out of that, that committee uh, and the applause behind it. So we, we thank Senator Graham for that. So bullying obviously has gone on ever since there were human beings. Mm -hmm. What about social media makes cyberbullying worse, more effective, more horrifying uh, in this day and age? 
Well, it can happen 24-7 in the privacy of your bedroom. Uh, kids don't often tell because they think that they can either deal with it on their own or they're afraid that their, their parents are going to take their devices away. And any child who struggles with social media addiction, online gaming addiction, um, screen addiction, um, really has that fear. And we struggled with that in our house. David didn't tell us what was going on for the first about month and a half. And when we finally found out about it and we were trying to take action, the damage had been was so far. I mean, he was so already down and depressed and anxious over it um, that, we, you know, we lost him and because he felt helpless and hopeless that we could not make it stop. You saw the moment earlier today where the CEO of Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, stood and apologized to the victims' families. Um, you were in the room. Um, what did you make of the moment? Were you satisfied with the apology? Well, I was right behind him, and of course he was forced to do it. And as a parent whose child was harmed on his platform, I felt like he could have done a lot better than what he did. He didn't take ownership of it. He knew what was going on and knows what happens on his platforms. He knows it's dangerous, and yet he continues to do nothing about it as far as we're concerned. What do you think should be done about it specifically um, in terms of, forget the legislation for one second, what do you want, um, was it Instagram or Facebook? I assume Instagram. Instagram. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you want Instagram to be doing to make cyberbullying a thing of the past? Well, they need to have a way for parents and school districts to be able to report it and have somebody, a live person, that they can communicate with and take it down. I mean, we often hear from school districts, they will reach out to us and say, can you help me? We need someone at Instagram to take something down. We have children that are suffering. Uh, they are being made fun of. They are, they are, um, there are rumors being spread about them that are not true, and they are in crisis. And we cannot get in anybody from Instagram to help us. Yeah, it's a multi-billion dollar company. You'd think that they would have an 800 number or something, uh, but that's not where they choose to spend their money. There, there have been questions about laws like the Kids Online Safety Act. Uh, we talked about that yesterday with Senators Blumenthal and Blackburn. And there are concerns um, that some of the restrictions might make it harder for kids to, to talk online about their problems with, with other kids or with counselors or people who might be able to help them. And that uh, an unintended restriction, an unintended result of the law, could it be, could be that some of these kids who find friends online are, then end up feeling isolated um, if they don't have adults with whom they could talk about these issues. Are you concerned about that? I, no, because COSA does not do that. So kids can search with whatever, for whatever it is that they want to search for. COSA is about design and operation of those platforms, the algorithms and how that content is force-fed to kids, the, uh, the doom scrolling that it is encouraged, the addictive-like behaviors that is encouraged. So kids will still be able to get all of the resources that they're looking for. Um, that is not what COSA does. Maureen Molek, thank you so much, and may your son's memory be a blessing. I, again, admire the work that you're doing in his name. Thank you, Jake. Remember, if, if you or anyone in your life needs any help at all, you can always call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. That's 24 hours a day. The number is 988. Again, that number is 988. Anytime, 
any day someone is standing by to help, there is help for you, there is love for you. Another serious issue facing social media companies today after a man allegedly decapitated his father and then posted a graphic video about it. Why was such horrific content allowed to stay online for so long? Plus, Donald Trump tries to peel away support from a group that helped deliver Biden the presidency in 2020. But could a huge pending legal decision throw a wrench in those plans today? Stay with us. A gruesome killing under investigation in our national lead after a Bucks County, Pennsylvania man posted a video on YouTube showing what he claimed was his dead father's decapitated head while ranting about the actions of the Biden administration. The video garnered thousands of views across several social media platforms before it was taken down. CNN's Danny Freeman takes a look now at what we know about the suspect and his motivation for the video and the alleged killing. Just a warning. Quite obviously, some of what is about to be described, although not shown in this package, you might find disturbing. We can't show you the video posted by 32-year-old Justin Moan Tuesday afternoon. It's too graphic and too horrific. But it's a crucial part of an investigation into the murder of his father, 68-year-old Michael Moan. It's a horrible, tragic incident. This all began around 7 p.m. Tuesday evening when Middletown Township Police got a call from Justin's mother saying she'd found her husband dead. When officers arrived in this quiet suburban neighborhood, they found a gruesome scene. According to a criminal complaint obtained by CNN, there was an elderly male in a bathroom with blood around him who had been decapitated. Officers found a machete and a large kitchen knife in the bathtub. Court documents said officers then found Michael Moan's head in a plastic bag in a cooking pot in the next room. Only then did police learn of his son's video posted to YouTube. In the 14 and a half minute video, Justin Moan rants about the Biden administration, the border, and calls his father a traitor to his country because he was a federal employee. Justin then raised his dead father's head on camera. I am very sad for the family. I'm very sad for the community. Um, you know, and, and also for the people that knew him. While police were at his home, though, Moan was heading west. A spokesperson for the Pennsylvania Department of Military and Veterans Affairs told CNN at around 9 p.m., Moan's cell phone was traced to just outside of the Fort Indian Town Gap National Guard Base, Pennsylvania's National Guard headquarters, nearly 100 miles from the crime scene. When police arrived, they found Moan's car empty outside the fence of the base. But when they traced him again at 9.25, Moan's phone was on the base. The PA DMVA said Moan was ultimately captured without incident near the base's center. The resolution from the commission of the crime to when he was taken into custody was rather quickly. And that kind of allays the community's fears that, you know, there's not an immediate threat to them. Moan was arraigned early Wednesday morning and charged with his father's murder and abuse of a body. Now, Jake, as you noted, another aspect to the story is it took several hours for YouTube to actually pull this video down. YouTube telling CNN it has strict policies prohibiting graphic violence and extremism and told us, quote, our teams are closely tracking to remove any re-uploads of that video. But, Jake, speaking with the police chief today, he says at this point it feels like at least everyone in this community has already seen this gruesome video. Jake? Yeah, because the tech companies are rather sclerotic when it comes to this sort of thing. Danny Friedman, thanks so much. A judge could make a decision any time, any moment, one that could put Donald Trump's entire business empire at risk and force him to cut a nine-figure check. 
We're going to take a closer look at what is exactly at stake here next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Back with our 2024 lead right now, the fate of former President Donald Trump's business empire is in the hands of a New York judge. And at any moment, Judge Arthur Engeron could rule on whether Donald Trump owes $370 million for fraud and whether Mr. Trump can still do business in the state of New York. While New York may be on Trump's mind, the Republican frontrunner for the uh, presidential nomination has descended on the city he loves to hate today, Washington, D.C., where he visited Teamster union leaders as he tries to peel away support from President Biden. This as a D.C. appeals court, just a few blocks away, is weighing Mr. Trump's claim that presidents enjoy absolute immunity. Our experts are with us now. Uh, Ellie, let me start with you. Uh, this New York fraud trial goes to the very heart of Donald Trump's identity as a business magnate with a huge business empire. The, the judge in this case says Trump lives in a fantasy world. Uh, how harsh do you think he's going to be with the ruling? Well, Jake, I think we're going to see an astronomical verdict when this comes out. I think it's going to be well into the nine figures, well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And this isn't just speculation. I base that on the record of this case itself. Let's remember, this judge ruled in favor of the AG and against Donald Trump on one of the counts before the case even started. And if you read that ruling, the judge rejects Donald Trump's defenses in very pointed fashion, using the quote you just used, that Donald Trump lives in a fantasy world. And during the trial itself, there were times when Trump's team asked for a motion to dismiss, for example. And again, the judge forcefully rejected that. I think it's clear the judge is going to come down with a massive verdict sometime soon. And Kristen, you were at Teamsters headquarters earlier today as uh, Mr. Trump tried to woo uh, members of the Teamsters union, working class voters. How do union members feel about Trump's various legal cases if that's a factor at all? Jake, when I'm talking to these union members, if they're considering voting for Donald Trump at all, his legal issues are not something that they care about. Even when we heard from an executive board member who opposed his visit to the Teamsters, it wasn't about his legal issues. It was about the fact that he called him a scab and a known union buster and said that he shouldn't be speaking to the union. When I talk to these various voters, in this, particularly in this voting block, they're more concerned like the rest of the country when it uh, about the economy, about immigration. And that's why you're going to continue to hear Donald Trump, particularly as he moves into a general election, if he is, in fact, the nominee, uh, talking about the economy nonstop, asking voters if they were better off four years ago than they are now. We even heard him trying to turn the messaging today into that as well.
Uh, Jamie, Trump's rival for the Republican nomination, Nikki Haley, has been needling Trump on all his legal troubles. Uh, listen to just one example from Sunday. They see that he's completely distracted. They see that he's going on these rants about how he's the victim. These court cases are going to keep happening one by one. We're going to keep seeing him in a courtroom and we're going to see him come out and do a press conference. That's not what you want a president to be. I'm going to talk to Governor Haley here on the lead tomorrow, by the way. Um, Haley's campaign manager told Republican mega donors that Trump will be a nightmare for the party, according to a source. How is Haley's message landing, Jamie? So when, when I talk to donors, her biggest supporters, look, they are realistic that she has a, an uphill climb here. Even top people on her campaign will admit that to me. That said, what you're seeing there, Jake, is the strategy. She is going to come out every day swinging. And in fact, in, in those two uh, clips, you don't even hear the roughest stuff. She calls him unhinged, confused. There was a new ad out today where she called both Trump and Biden grumpy old men. All of that said, there needs to be a moment, some game changer for her, and the campaign knows that. She can afford to stay <clears throat> in a little longer, but unless she goes up in the polls, you know, this is Trump's uh, primary. Yeah. Ellie, I also want to get your thoughts in the aftermath of the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Trump posted at 11 p.m. last night saying he's interviewing various law firms uh, for an appeal. What does this tell you about Alina Haba's status uh, as his lawyer? And does this, uh, can you elaborate any, uh, if there's anything that you think she did particularly wrong in the E. Jean Carroll case, given the short, you know, we only have a couple hours for the show. <laughs> Well, Jake, it's definitely not a vote of confidence. I mean, often when a lawyer and a client get a hit with a verdict like that, they do want to bring in a different lawyer to do the appeal for obvious reasons. Here, here's my assessment of Alina Haba's performance as a lawyer. The good news is she's clearly passionate and believes in her client and her cause, and she's fairly effective at communicating one simple message. The downside is she doesn't know what she's doing in the courtroom. I mean, plain and simple. If you look at that transcript, she can't even do things that you learn in evidence class in law school, move exhibits into evidence, not violate the rules of hearsay. And the other thing is, and look, maybe this is an impossible task. She had zero client control and allowing her client, again, I don't know who can control this client, but allowing her client to be muttering audibly in front of the jury to walk out during the other side's closing argument that is just inexcusable. And I think that's reflected in the huge verdict that they got hit with. And Jamie, this, this shuffling of lawyers is hardly unusual for Donald Trump. Now, Donald, this is Donald Trump's superpower. He knows how to shop for lawyers. I think the question here is, who's going to work for him? Uh, the appeal, you know, does not look like a very strong appeal, as far as we know. And so can he get the level of lawyer he wants? And then, to Ellie's point, is he going to listen to the lawyer? Right. And is he going to pay the lawyer? That's another question. Also. Thanks to all of you. My next guest serves as Donald Trump's national security advisor. He's out with a new warning about just how damaging he thinks a second Trump term would be. His insights next. Some breaking news for you this afternoon. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis might have lost his bid for the presidency, but he just won a major fight with the Magic Kingdom. A federal judge in Florida today dismissed Disney's lawsuit against DeSantis and his political allies, which was filed after DeSantis signed a bill giving him and the state of Florida new power 
over the 47-square-mile district that contains Walt Disney World Resort. Up until then, that area was essentially self-governed by the corporation of Disney. This lawsuit filed by Disney, which the judge said failed on merit, accused DeSantis of weaponizing his political power to punish Disney for exercising its right to free speech. All of this dates back to about two years ago when the company criticized a DeSantis bill that banned certain instruction about sexual orientation and gender identity in Florida classrooms. Turning now to our world lead and Iran's military leader saying today, quote, we are not in pursuit of war, but we are not afraid of war. This comes just one day after President Biden announced he has decided how the U.S. should respond and will respond to Sunday's drone strike by an Iran-backed militant group that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan and wounded dozens others. This afternoon, the White House formally assigned blame to, quote, the umbrella group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq. Top officials also confirmed the counterattack will be multiple phases. Joining us now to discuss former ambassador to the United Nations and former national security advisor to President Trump, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton has a paperback version of his memoir, The Room Where It Happened, out now with a new foreword on how detrimental a second Trump term would be. Ambassador, let's start with Iran. Um, You have said that you think Biden should order strikes on targets directly in Iran. And you say we're already in the wider war so many have warned about. Which targets inside Iran? Well, let me be clear. The reason to go after targets inside Iran is that they've made it very clear they consider that a red line. Well, I consider killing Americans a red line, and they have crossed it. Uh, So to uh, establish clearly that we're prepared to do what's necessary to prevent Iran from succeeding through its terrorist surrogates in the region, uh, I think we've got to let them know that we don't care any more about their red lines than they care about ours. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, at least at first, going after regime-threatening targets. I'm talking about things like air defense systems inside Iran, military bases in the west of the country where Shia militia groups have been trained and armed over the years, Iranian naval vessels uh, in the Red Sea. We'll see what their reaction is to that, and then we can decide whether to go after oil infrastructure, the nuclear program, the ballistic missile program, uh, or regime command and control facilities. For Biden, not to make it clear that the United States knows who is pulling the strings in all these conflicts in the Middle East, simply risks having this conflict continue. But wouldn't this just escalate the conflict? I think right now Iran is not paying any price for anything that's happening in the region. And until they begin to pay a price, they will simply continue to push. No one wants a wider war, but look at the way Iran is behaving now. Uh, Do you want to try and confront this problem now, or would you rather wait until Iran gets deliverable nuclear weapons? So Ambassador Nikki Haley, a fellow former U.N. ambassador and the last major Republican candidate still standing against Trump, laid out in, in more detail than Trump how she would respond. Take a listen. Put the sanctions back on, first thing. Second thing is go and look at the production sites where those missiles are coming from. Take those out in Iraq and Syria. Thirdly, go after the IRGC members that are making these decisions. It's strategic. It's not that you just go bomb a country. You go and you take out one or two of those leaders, it will leave them flat-footed. Now, Biden did uh, announce uh, extra sanctions today on Iran's military and on Hezbollah's 
financial network. Do you agree with Haley's other two points? Well, look, uh, the Biden administration for three years has not enforced the existing sanctions, uh, and it has allowed Iranian oil shipments and revenues from that to get back almost to uh, the levels they were before uh, the sanctions were reimposed in the Trump administration. I think there are a lot of things you can do that are not regime threatening. And being a moderate guy myself, that's what I'm recommending for the first attacks inside Iran, so that everybody will know that we don't have the hidden agenda that I have to change the regime. But the point is that the Biden administration is bending over backwards at this point not to hit targets in Iran. And that will have exactly the opposite effect of what they want. It will embolden Iran because it says we're afraid of their red line. So just to elaborate on what you just said, I mean, you're suggesting regime change. How how does one go about doing that while staying within the, the boundaries of international law? Well, I think it's very easy. I think the people of Iran are overwhelmingly against the regime. I think there are any number of things we could do short of using military force to aid the people of Iran. The only thing that keeps the Ayatollahs in power now uh, is the barrel of the gun. And I think Iran's heading for a period of real instability when the supreme leader dies, uh, because I think that's when the regime can fragment. You're not going to have peace and security in the Middle East as long as Uh, The mullahs in Tehran are arming and equipping the Houthi in Yemen, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, and these Shia militia groups in Iraq and Syria. Uh, Iran is the central threat to peace and security, and we're not doing anything about it. Let's turn to the new forward of your book. You predict that if Donald Trump wins in November, quote, he will not depart voluntarily this time. Um, Elaborate on that, if you would. Do you think the political violence that we saw on January 6th is inevitable if Trump wins another term, that he will decisively refuse to leave at the end of four years uh, because he's unable to change the Constitution uh, to his liking? Well, it's more in the in the context. What if he is convicted in one of these Uh, criminal cases. Probably if he's president, he will have dismissed the federal cases. But what if he's convicted in Georgia, let's say, and the Georgia state police arrive to come and put him in jail? Uh, I think Trump's going to do everything he can uh, to maintain himself in power. He does have the Constitution standing in his way this time, which expressly bars a third term. And I'm sure one of the things he'll do is launch an effort to amend the Constitution. But it's also the chaos that he'll spread really from day one by trying to use the Justice Department to get retribution against his enemies. And who knows what he'll try and get the Defense Department to do. You told CNN's Caitlin Collins last night that there's no correct answer when choosing between President Biden and former President Trump and that you're not going to vote uh, for either one of them. But really, it is it ends up being a choice between two individuals, two candidates. I know you wrote in somebody last time and that you vote in Maryland, which is a reliably blue state. But what do you suggest uh, national security minded minded voters in battleground states do? Well, I haven't given up on defeating Trump for the Republican nomination. And until the convention nominates him, I don't plan to give up on that. People say that, uh, you know, you're in a box, you're afraid to vote for a Democrat. I'm not going to vote for somebody whose philosophy I disagree with. I'm that, that would contradict my uh, most fundamental beliefs. I'm, I'm in a situation uh, that is very unhappy. I think 
uh, Trump is uh, feckless and incompetent to be president. And I think the policies being pursued by the Biden administration right now are very damaging to the country. There is no satisfactory candidate. That's not because I'm afraid to vote for Biden. I'm not going to vote uh, for a philosophy I've opposed since I first supported Barry Goldwater for president in 1964. Suffice it to say you would be delighted to vote for Nikki Haley? Uh, I would vote for. Yeah, I would vote for. I, I would have v- voted for any Republican other than Donald Trump and Vivek Ramaswamy in, in this uh, past go round. <clears throat> Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much. Glad to be with As you. Congress fights over a potential border deal, cities across the U.S. are reaching a breaking point and begging for more help to deal with the surge in migrants. Why this crisis could now lead to essential services such as firefighters being cut. That's next. In our politics lead, a bipartisan border compromise by members of the U.S. Senate is on the verge of tanking, even though the details of what's actually in this legislation has not yet been released. Some Senate Republicans and a majority of those in the House are relying on what they think is in it, and they are following former President Donald Trump's marching orders to make sure that the compromise fails. Mr. Trump has said they need to get everything they want in the bill not just some of what they want. Here's Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson earlier today blaming President Biden for failing to take action in securing the border. President Biden wants to somehow try to shift the blame to Congress for his administration's catastrophe by design. It's absolutely laughable. No one's falling for this. Meanwhile, some Senate Republicans who have worked for weeks to get Democrats and President Biden to concede a lot of conservative measures Republicans are were demanding are now rebuking members of their own party for wanting to kill the deal. Here is Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. He's the Republican that has been leading the border negotiations, pushing back on Speaker Johnson's criticism of the bill. Speaker says that if one migrant comes across the border, that's one migrant too many, and your bill doesn't do enough to completely shut down the border. Actually, it does completely shut down the border in many ways. This border battle goes far beyond Washington, D.C., of course, as CNN's Shimon Prokopes reports for us from Denver, Colorado. There are any number of major cities in the United States where migrants are being dropped off by red state governors, and those cities are nearing a breaking point as temperatures plummet and resources are drained. If we could work, none of us would be living like this, he says. Denver facing a record number of migrants, straining resources, leaving many on the streets. Were you, are you hoping wow. that wind, you could just see the wind here again and the tents blowing? Wow. See. Alexander from Venezuela complains of the freezing conditions. He shows us how he's been living. He says this foam protects the tent from the wind. This is your bed? This is how he looks for work, he says. And you, you, that's your sign. But it's just getting too cold here in Denver, and they need to start moving uh, the people out inside into shelters. There's not a lot of space here, but the city's doing its best. They're just worried about what's going to happen with their stuff. Migrant advocate Yoli Casas urgently tries to help move families. My heartbroken heart is like Denver is officially full. No one should come. There's no room. They're going to be outside freezing to death. 
The city has 40,000 migrants with about 4,000 in shelters, which are now at capacity. Denver's mayor, Mike Johnston, visits a shelter. He's immediately surrounded by migrants asking for help. It's good for him to see what's happening, she says, worried she'll end up in the streets with her son. She's thankful, she says, but sorry she came here illegally. Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott has sent thousands of migrants to Denver on buses, which continue to arrive. We've had conversations with um, Greg Abbott. I, mean, I, 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 or I have not talked to Governor Abbott. Talked I've reached out to him, but we, he has, he's not called, he has not called me back. So if you, what do you want to talk to him about if you were, if you could speak to him? Yeah, I mean, what I, what I would say to him is that I understand. You know, they feel like they have a huge influx of people that they can't handle in Texas alone. I agree with him that no one state or no one city should need to solve this entire challenge. But I think there's a way for us to work together. Migrants could cost the city $180 million this year, the mayor says. And it's on the verge of cutting essential services. We don't want to take police officers off the street. We don't want to take firefighters off the street. We don't want to not do trash pickup or not have our parks and recreation centers open. The strain on resources frustrating others in need. They're using a bend-don't-break approach, but I think you need to help our, our, the American side first is, is, you know, before you help you know, the influx of migrants before us. Yeah. Seeking relief, mayors like Johnston pleading for more federal help, allowing migrants to work. What is your name? Wilfred. Wilfred. Okay. So he's telling us he needs a warm place to stay. It's about 20 degrees or so. No, no. I... There's no place to go, he says. You can die from the cold here. You can. It's going to get much colder. You have to go inside, sir. Okay? At night, we learn of a group sheltering under a bridge. There's a group of people coming here now to try and take them inside, but it's just too cold to be outside. But this is how they've been living. If they could pack up a suitcase, uh, that is as much as they can bring. With limited city resources, residents are stepping in, like Pastor Keith Reeser, who's opening up his church. As far as you know, are we ready to walk or do we need to stay for a little bit? Okay. So what's your goal here now? Uh, we, we've got some friends. Uh, I grabbed a couple of my buddies and I said, let's go get them and let's get them out of this situation. So we're going to offer them shelter for the night. Seven in my vehicle, so I can take seven. Another resident is using her motel as a sanctuary. Can I come? Housing about 300 migrants. So how many stay here? All of these mattresses? Yeah. One, two, around three. Around 20. Around 20, just in this one room. Yeah. She is like a mother to us, he says. Seriously, she gets up at 5 in the morning and cooks us breakfast. Young Prince was planning to leave Denver to retire. But when migrants started showing up at her hotel, she found a reason to stay. My parents come from North Korea. Your parents? I was hungry. I was we don't have any meals for a long time. I born 52, I left to walk. So that's I feel them. They've, they've touched a certain part of you. Yeah. And it's almost like they've become your family. Yeah, they are. 
I want to make sure they're eating. You want to make sure they're eating, taking care of. And so, Jake, just like you see that woman there, others have stepped in to help because they're really at a critical point here uh, in Denver where it's really straining so many of their resources. One of the things that the Denver mayor is doing is, is he's offering bus tickets at about $300 or so a pop where if migrants want to leave Denver, they can leave. Um, they say they have families to go to, so they're buying them these bus tickets. They're trying to do everything to relieve some of the strain that they're feeling, Jake. Shimon Prokopes, thank you so much. Appreciate that reporting. For years, leaders of big tech have been called to Capitol Hill to try and explain how they are protecting your kids online or if they are protecting your kids online. Coming up next, see why a hearing on this very issue today was so different. Wake. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the spin cycle from both Democrats and Republicans blasting each other over efforts to strike a comprehensive border deal or kill the deal. What CNN is learning now about the next move planned by Democrats, one that's somewhat risky that Democrats have never tried before. Plus, the FBI director warning that Chinese hackers are prepared to, quote, wreak havoc on critical U.S. infrastructure, such as the water supply or power grids. Can the U.S. protect against a potential attack. I'll ask a man who led U.S. cybersecurity and infrastructure security in the U.S. And leading this hour, an airing of grievances in the U.S. Senate today. Members speaking for so many Americans, frustrated with the leaders of big tech, who they argue are not doing nearly enough to protect children on social media. Child sexual exploitation is a crisis in America. It's a collective your platforms really suck at policing themselves. Your product is killing people. Will you personally commit to compensating the victims? Children are not your priority. Children are your product. Even before the questioning started, my next guest predicted how this hearing would likely play out. I expect these senators to feel a little bit exasperated when they're probing some of these tech firms. I expect these tech CEOs to be pretty prepared. One of the interesting things is that because these bills have been around for so long, they have a pretty good sense of what they're going to get asked and what response they should have. That was Sarah Fisher, senior media reporter at Axios and CNN media analyst, or analyst this morning. Joining us now, so Sarah, uh, the big moment from today's hearing was when Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg was kind of pushed by Senator Josh Hawley to turn around and apologize uh, to the families of various victims of nefarious activities that happened on social media. Um, here's a little excerpt. I, I, I'm sorry. And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing extremely efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. What was your reaction to that? I thought it was very emotional, Jake, and it wasn't just him. It was also Snapchat CEO Evan Spiegel who apologized to those families. You know, normally the tension is between the CEOs and the members of Congress. What made this testimony different was that you had those family members in the audience and they brought a different type of energy, which then forced the CEOs into this place where they had to apologize and be very soft. Typically in these hearings, they want to come out forceful in defense of their firms. But with the families right there, they were forced to take a position of being sorry and apologetic. And that really empowered the members of Congress to go after them even harder. 
I want to play uh, how South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham opened the hearing. Take a listen. These are bastards by any known definition. Uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, you and the companies before us, I know you don't mean it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. You have a product that's killing people. A lot of unanimity uh, on that dais among Democrats and Republicans. Um, was today a bad day for the tech CEOs? And do you think legislation's coming? I do, Jake, and that's why it was a bad day for these tech CEOs. Senator Dick Durbin has introduced a package of bills, and a lot of these bills have been introduced already. As I mentioned up top this morning, the senators knew what was coming to them, and the Tech CEOs knew it was coming because these bills have been around a while. But what made today different was that you had such bipartisan support. I think it's going to be enough to possibly push this package forward. And so what does that mean for tech companies? It means that they might have to reroute their rules, might have to make less money in order to make sure that they adhere to these legislations that are meant to protect children online. I want to play in a different moment. This is from Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar. When a Boeing plane lost a door in mid-flight several weeks ago, nobody questioned the decision to ground a fleet of over 700 planes. So why aren't we taking the same type of decisive action on the danger of these platforms when we know these kids are dying? I mean, it has been decades since the start of the internet. Uh, why do you think Congress hasn't been able to pass any sort of regulation on social media and the impact it has on kids? Because doing so might upend the internet as we know it. That one law that Senator Klobuchar is referring to that was passed in the mid-1990s hasn't been repealed because there's nothing we can replace it with, Jake. And at this point, if the Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act were to be yanked, all of the businesses that are surrounding the internet would fall. So what we're at is we need to try to find a way to either amend it or replace it with something better. But two houses, two different parties have never been able to come together. That's why this hearing was historic. For the first time in a long time, I felt like the parties were aligned on something. It turns out that kids is might be the thing that brings politics together. We'll see. That's Section 230. It uh, gives immunity to social media companies for what other people post uh, on their platforms. And uh, that provision is alive for now. Sarah Fisher, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our world lead, expect multiple phases of a U.S. counterattack to that drone strike that killed three American soldiers in Jordan and wounded dozens others. Today, the White House is officially blaming the attack on the, quote, Islamic resistance in Iraq. That is, they say, an umbrella group of Iranian-backed militias and terrorist groups. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby today saying that U.S. intelligence is looking for signs of groups in the region moving resources to try to outmaneuver any U.S. counterstrike. We'll respond uh, on our own time, on our own schedule. The first thing you see won't be the last thing. This, as U.S. officials tell CNN, that a cruise missile launched by the Houthis last night came within one mile of a U.S. warship in the Red Sea before that was shot down. The closest call yet. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida and Republican Congressman Mike Lawler of New York. They wrote 
a bipartisan letter to President Biden demanding that he implement more sanctions on Iran, specifically targeting its oil trade, which the congressmen say provides, quote, a crucial lifeline to sustain and expand Tehran's sponsorship of terrorist groups, unquote. Congressman Lawler, let me start with you. Today, the U.S. Treasury Department uh, sanctioned three foreign entities and one individual that provide critical financial support to the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, as well as the Hezbollah Financial Network. Uh, you two say you want the administration to deliver a hammer blow to these Iranian-backed proxies. Congressman Lawler, does this move uh, go far enough? Well, it's certainly a good step, Jake. Uh, but Jared and I introduced the SHIP Act uh, last year and passed it through the House in the aftermath of the October 7th terrorist attack. And what it would do is implement secondary sanctions on the purchase of Iranian petroleum. Uh, the illicit Iranian petroleum uh, sales, the oil trade, uh, is, is what is fueling uh, the funding of terrorism in the Middle East right now. Iran is the greatest state sponsor of terror. They use the proceeds from this oil trade uh, to fund Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and others, uh, including uh, the terrorist attack that uh, took the lives of three service members this past weekend. We need to act. Uh, the Senate needs to pass this legislation. The White House needs to sign it. Uh, because if we are to stop and combat uh, the terrorism that is occurring, we need to start with the funding source, and that is the illicit oil trade uh, with Iranian petroleum. Congressman Moskowitz, sanctions aside, we are all still waiting to see how the Biden administration will respond militarily to that attack that killed three U.S. Three US soldiers and wounded at least 41 others. What, what sort of response do you want to see? Uh, we had John Bolton on the show a few minutes ago, and he said he thinks there should be a military strike in Iran. Well, look, obviously my heart goes out to the families uh, of our brave U.S. soldiers uh, who lost their lives and, and the families of those that are injured. I mean, there are, there's a, a score of injured uh, service men and women um, uh, over in, uh, at that base. Uh, listen, uh, I, I think diplomacy is important. I think diplomatic actions are important. I think we should be denying the uh, Iranian regime uh, access to the UN. We should be denying their uh, visas. That's a diplomatic action. Uh, I, but, it, you know, and I think sanctions are important. I think what Representative Lawler and I are, are working on uh, is uh, more economic sanctions, and there's a lot more we can do economically, but it's not enough. Uh, we, I do think there needs to be a hammer blow to the proxies. I agree with John Kirby that it should be at a point of our choosing. I also believe it should be sustained. It shouldn't be one sort of target that we take out. It should be a multitude of targets, and we should be eliminating the proxies' capabilities. In fact, it should be such a blow to the proxies that we don't have to deal with them anymore because they have no capabilities, and Iran should see what it looks like to continue to mess with the United States. They've not seen that in a while. We might need to remind people the capabilities of the United States, and we should do that with the proxies. We shouldn't strike Iran proper. I don't think we are there. That would be playing into the hands of China and Russia, by the way, who would love for us to get bogged down again in the Middle East and turn our attention away from Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, but we cannot let this stand anymore. I think the president's going to make the right decision on this. Speaking of Ukraine and, and Taiwan, uh, aid to those uh, two countries, or, or one country and one territory, uh, are, uh, is on the line right now when it comes to this border deal that Senate Republicans have been trying to negotiate. Congressman Lawler, uh, House Republicans are signaling they're, they're going to kill 
uh, this compromise coming from the Senate. Um, take a listen to what House Speaker Johnson said earlier today. We should be asking what kind of enforcement authority kicks in at 5,000 illegal crossings a day. The number should be zero. Zero. Anything higher is simply surrender. Anything higher than zero is surrendering our border, surrendering our sovereignty and our security. Uh, a, there's never been zero, even when Donald Trump was president and had pretty harsh border measures. It's, the number's never been zero. But B, Congressman Lawler, um, Senator Kirsten Sinema, the independent from Arizona, who's part of the three-senator team writing the bill, says his description's not accurate. Uh, Lankford says that as well. She says the bill triggers a required shutting down of the border if there are 5,000 encounters, not admissions. And even then, those who are encountered are not automatically allowed to stay, and on and on. Um, are you on board with the House Republican conference walking away from this compromise? Well, first of all, Jake, nobody's actually seen the final details. And I think that uh, it is necessary for everyone to actually see the details uh, before uh, making a definitive statement on it. My objective is threefold. Secure the border, uh, stop this massive influx of not only migrants, but human trafficking, drug trafficking. Uh, you know, in 2022, 70,000 Americans lost their lives to fentanyl overdose, much of the fentanyl coming across our southern border. We have to secure the border. What the speaker is saying and the point he is making is, yes, it's never been zero, but we have to enforce our laws. This administration has failed miserably in its responsibility to secure the border. Near, since Joe Biden took office, nearly 10 million migrants have crossed our southern border, many of them illegally. 90% of them are released into our country. Catch and release must stop as the official policy of this administration. Remain in Mexico should be reinstated. So there is a lot of work ahead. Uh, I am curious to see if the Senate can actually pass a deal. House Republicans passed H.R. 2 back in May uh, of last year. We went through a long process. We negotiated that bill in our House. Uh, the Senate has yet to actually produce a product. Yes, they are negotiating. Yes, they are working through it. But let's see they, them actually pass a bill and then negotiate with the House. That is how this works. It is not just the House accepts what, this, what the Senate does. We have to negotiate. We should negotiate. And we should get a final bill to secure our border. Yeah, but the speaker said no before you've, you you just said you haven't seen the legislation. The speaker is describing it and saying it's dead on arrival. Well, with all due respect, see, Jake, this is you, you have with all due respect, you haven't seen the bill and and interestingly over the last few weeks the media has been trying to pressure everyone to agree to a deal that hasn't actually been produced. Why don't we see what the final bill is and then let's see if they pass it? Uh, and then we negotiate. The bottom line is we have to secure the border. President Biden and the Biden administration actually have authority right now to, to start to enforce our laws, and they're choosing not to, and that is a big part of the problem here. Yeah, and Jake, by the way, the speaker said no because Donald Trump said no. The speaker is Donald Trump's no boy, okay, on this subject. Look, I'll give Republicans credit for a second. They have been highlighting the border for a long time, okay, and we were late, uh, we were late to start addressing it. But now that we want to address it, now that we want to lower the amount of fentanyl coming in, now that we want to deal with uh, non-documented folks, now that we want to deal with supposed terrorists potentially coming into the country, now 
the Republicans, controlled by one man, are saying, no, 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 we need this uh, for the next 10 months. We need more of it, in fact, for the next 10 months so that we can use it in election. Both things are true here. This is why people hate Washington. Both things are true. The Biden administration yeah. and Democrats were slow. But now that we're here at the table, Republicans Again, are like, no, no, the, let's the walk question, away. The question is, what is in the actual bill? So nobody has actually seen the bill. The bill is dead. Donald nobody Trump has seen Donald it. Donald Trump and has the said the bill is dead. Me, the bill's dead. The question to but me you're, is, you know, House, as, Congress, as Congressman Moskowitz just said, both, both can be true. Both can be true. Well, we listen, haven't seen the me, bill. For me, and, it is and, very, Jake, for me, it's very simple. Uh, we have a responsibility to secure the border. Congressman Moskowitz is 100% correct. That yeah. House Republicans have been focused on this for a very long time. Senate Democrats chose not to do anything. Chuck Schumer, despite the fact that New York was being inundated, despite the fact that Eric Adams said it was destroying New York City, chose not to do anything we until go we right said now. that we weren't going to pass the supplemental without border security. That is you where two we are. Invited are. Back. We need to negotiate a bill. <laughs> You, you two are invited back. Congressman Mike Lawler Thank and Jared Moskowitz of New York and Florida, Republican and Democrat. Thanks so much. CNN learned this week that the Chinese president promised President Biden back in November that his country would not interfere in the 2024 election. The FBI director was asked about that today. China's promised a lot of things over the years, so I'll, I guess I'll believe it when I see it. He also had a warning about what else the Chinese government might be up to. We're going to have that story next. In our world lead, FBI Director Christopher Wray today downplayed a promise from the Chinese government that they will stay away from interfering in U.S. elections. Director Wray argues that the U.S. is facing continued very real threats from foreign adversaries, including China, to create chaos and sow deep divisions in American society. But that was not the most concerning thing that Director Wray had to say about the People's Republic of China, or PRC, when he talked to lawmakers earlier today. Take a listen. PRC hackers are targeting our critical infrastructure, our water treatment plants, our electrical grid, our oil and natural gas pipelines, our transportation systems, and the risk that poses to every American requires our attention now. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens and communities if and when China decides the time has come to strike. Here to help us understand the threat is Chris Krebs, former director of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency uh, during the Trump administration. Um, Chris, how, how serious is this threat that China poses to dismantle American critical infrastructures such as water and, and power? Help us understand it. I mean, I, I, in my brain, I'm thinking of this Netflix movie, uh, leave the world behind where there's like some sort of cyber attack and society is completely, re it's pretty chilling actually, is reduced into complete and utter chaos. Are we talking about that sort of thing? Well, I know when I talk to those in the national security community, including in the intelligence community, it is a all hands on deck and fairly hair on fire sort of uh, situation right now. As I understand it, there are two main prongs to the current campaign by the Chinese uh, security services. One is to 
target directly U.S. military assets. And we heard last summer that they were going after uh, military and transportation facilities in Guam and elsewhere in the Pacific region. And that would, I'd assume, include Honolulu and Indo-PACOM. But there's a second, I think, more kind of uh, insidious and more concerning aspect, and that's a more ad hoc almost opportunistic and random uh, sort of campaign that's targeting U.S. infrastructure. And that's what that's what Director Ray was going after. That's what Director Easterly, my successor at CISA, was going after. And they're basically scouring the Internet for Internet-connected devices that have not been patched, that are vulnerable to Chinese hackers who are quite good, and they have compromised those systems, and they are in position and just waiting, effectively, to pull the trigger. And Unfortunately, at this point, other than uh, just vulnerable systems, there's there's not particularly a rhyme or reason uh, to what their their campaign and their modus operandi might be. Is the U.S. prepared to defend itself against these threats? Well, there were there were two or three kind of main themes from the hearing today. The first is that if there is a single bipartisan issue in the United States Congress, uh, and that is the understanding of the threat from the PRC, as you pointed out, and what we're doing to counter it. And it, what the second thing that really came out clearly to me is that this is not something that we're going to attack our way out uh, out of. And, and yes, Cyber Command Director uh, uh, General Nakasone from Cyber Command and Director of the NSA, they are out there every day trying to dismantle Chinese operations and Russian operations and Iranian operations. But you're not going to be able to catch every arrow. And that's the third theme is that the United States, our businesses, our critical infrastructure owners and operators have to see this cyber risk as a business risk. It's not something you can just wait till the next quarter or the next year. You have to take it seriously and invest in your cybersecurity programs uh, and and make sure that that you're taking it seriously because you could be targeted if you have these vulnerable systems uh, that the Chinese are going after. Chris, does deterrence not work? In other words, China or Russia or Iran would, would have to know that if they launch such a cyber attack on the United States, that the U.S. would be able to respond with similar attacks. Does that, is that not effective? Well, classically, there, there are two elements of deterrence. That's deterrence by cost and position, which is, I think, what you're going after here is where we're going to hit you hard. Uh, unfortunately, we do live in fairly glassy houses here in the U.S. We have more Internet connected and cyber dependencies than just about anywhere else on uh, on the face of the earth. And then there's another aspect of de- deterrence by denial. And so we're going to have to have that balance of, yes, we can hit you hard, but also we got to become a harder target. We really, you know, you almost have to uh, be faster than the next guy when the bear's chasing you. And again, this is what this is what Jen Easterly was going after. Director Easterly was going after cyber hygiene, just taking your your IT risks seriously and closing out avenues and opportunities for the bad guys. Chris Krebs, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Republicans are turning up their criticism of President Biden, blaming him for the situation at the U.S.-Mexico border. Sources tell CNN the Democrats are going to try their own strategy for a rebuttal, one that they hope pays off for them this election year. What is it? Stay tuned. In our politics lead, President Biden hopes that threats by House Republicans to tank the bipartisan Senate border compromise can work to his advantage... Let's bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez. Priscilla, how 
Are Democrats and President Biden hoping to use this border crisis to their benefit? Well, Jake, this is an unusual and an interesting development for a party that has generally kept border security at a distance. But over the last few days, they now see an opportunity to go on the offensive on border security. And sources I've talked to say that the reason for that is because the messaging here is quite simple. They can pin the blame on Republicans for not wanting to move forward with a tough deal. As one strategist told me, quote, they chickened out. Now, generally, Democrats have framed immigration on the campaign trail as wanting to move forward with immigration reform, but not having the opportunity because Republicans got in the way. This time, though, they go a step further by saying that they wanted reform and they wanted tough reform and Republicans still got in the way. Notably, Jake, this deal that we know of so far doesn't include legalization for undocumented immigrants. That has been a top ask for Democrats for years. And by that being excluded and by these new authorities being added, it essentially puts Democrats in a position where they can take advantage of what has historically been a political liability. Now, over the weekend, President Biden cited border security when talking to South Carolina Democrats, saying that if given the opportunity, he would shut down the border and do it quickly. All of that really a preview of what we might see from Democrats on the campaign trail moving forward. Interesting. Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. Let's bring in our political panel to discuss this and much more. Nia Malika Henderson, you have a new column out in Bloomberg today. It says, quote, Biden sounds like Trump on the border. It's good politics, unquote. Explain. What, what do you mean it's good politics? Well, listen, Bloomberg's got a poll out today that looks at this issue and shows that six in 10 uh, voters in swing states blame Biden uh, for this issue, place some blame with him, fewer, far fewer uh, blame Republicans and, and Donald Trump. So you have in Joe Biden, somebody is taking who is taking up the mantle of really sounding like, like a hawk on immigration. This is entirely new uh, for Democrats in so many ways who usually tied border security to some sort of pathway uh, to legal legalization. But that obviously is not happening. He has really got to get his arms around this because what it also shows is that voters who are over 65, and we know how crucial those voters are in a place like uh, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Michigan, those swing states, uh, they say, see immigration, the problem of immigration, as tied with the economy as the most important issue uh, heading into November. So, you know, I think he has something of an opportunity here to use the bully pulpit, maybe give some sort of big speech about his vision for immigration, what he wants to do. It sounds like that's something that the White House is going to do, but I think uh, they've got a really a hard road to hoe on this because of the influx of migrants and all of these uh, blue states that hadn't seen this uh, in years past. Now they are facing uh, broken budgets and discontented residents uh, who are also looking at Democrats and Biden to blame for this issue. Yeah, Ashley Allison, uh, how does this play within the Democratic Party, especially as we see uh, individuals in big cities, uh, New York and Chicago and we, Denver? We had a great report from Shimon Prokopez earlier in the show uh, where Democrats, uh, progressive voters are seeing the impact of uh, this migrant crisis in their own cities. Well, two things can be true at the same time. And so what I think is important to point out is that there is a way to solve this problem. The question is, who is going to get it solved and who is going to be obstructionist to stop it? And so I think what Democrats are going to be doing is saying exactly what Ian Malika was saying, is that we want to solve it, but the Republicans are preventing us to get to a solution. 
I also think, though, that th- these policies are coming to the front doors of cities that have typically not been um, having larger uh, populations of migrants crossing the border because of the taxes that Abbott and other chances do busing them to the uh, community. But there's also another component to this, as that we know immigrants are important to our economy. They do pay into Social Security. And so there is a balance that the Biden campaign is going to have to play where the coalition is fragile because you don't want to go too far to the center when isolating your progressive base, but you also want a solution to the issue that everyone in the country knows is a problem right now. Kristen Soltis-Anderson, there's a new Quinnipiac poll uh, out today with a head-to-head matchup between Biden and Trump. 50% of registered voters say they would vote for Biden. 44% would vote for Trump. That's registered voters, not likely voters, but that does give Biden a win outside the margin of error. In a match between Biden and Nikki Haley, Biden polls 42% of registered voters. Haley gets 47%. That gives her the edge also outside uh, the margin of error. Um, Kristen, you're a Republican pollster. Nikki Haley's been making this electability argument for a long time now, um, and polls continue to support her. It doesn't seem to matter to Republican voters, though. Why not? Well, for the last year, the polls have told a much more upbeat story about Donald Trump's potential for being elected president or re-elected president. Um, And so for a long time, Republican voters have been very dismissive of the idea that Donald Trump is going to lose to Joe Biden. They look at their two candidates, they like Donald Trump a lot, and they look at Joe Biden and think he's a very weak general election candidate. So while Nikki Haley and before her, Ron DeSantis as well, have tried to make the case, we shouldn't go with Donald Trump. He's going to be a general election disaster. Republican voters haven't found it credible. Of course, it's going to be fascinating if Donald Trump all but locks up the Republican nomination. And then you start getting all of these polls telling what many of us have been concerned about for a while, which is, no, Donald Trump has a lot of liabilities. And as the general election candidate, voters are going to be reminded not just of the things they liked about his presidency, things like the economy, but a lot of the things they didn't like about Donald Trump being in charge. Nikki Haley was on The Breakfast Club this morning. She was asked by Charlemagne the God how Trump has changed politics. Take a listen to her response. He's made it chaotic. He's made it self-absorbed. He's made people dislike and judge each other. He's left that a president should have moral clarity and know the difference between right or wrong. And he's just toxic. Nia Malika, this is one of Haley's starkest attacks on Trump since she lost to him in the New Hampshire, pri- New Hampshire primary. Do you think it's going to have an appeal to Republican voters in South Carolina or is she just going out with a bang saying what she thinks? You know, I think it's going out with a bang. She doesn't expect to win South Carolina. I'm actually headed down there. Uh, in a couple of days, but she, her popularity there, she can probably get 40, maybe, uh, you know, 47% or so, but she's not going to beat Donald Trump in South Carolina. She sounds a lot like the voters I've talked to who have switched from Donald Trump to Joe Biden from 2016 to 2020. They too have a, a sort of uh, discontent about him morally, the way he presents himself, some of the sort of bigotry uh, that he off and spouts. And so she sounds a lot like that, but there aren't enough of those kind of voters uh, at this point in the Republican Party, certainly not in South And certainly as you get sort of deeper into this primary, I think she's going to have a really hard time using South Carolina as a launching pad uh, beyond that. 
All right. Thanks to all of you. Really appreciate it. This programming note, I'm going to speak one-on-one with Ambassador Nikki Haley. Look for that interview tomorrow afternoon right here on The Lead, beginning at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Pacific. Next up this hour on The Lead, the alleged affair between the Fulton County District Attorney and a top prosecutor on her staff. Why the allegations will be silenced in court, at least for now. And that isn't the only effort to tank the case that Willis brought on against Donald Trump. Stay with us. In our law and justice lead, Fonnie Willis, the district attorney leading Georgia's 2020 election subversion case against former President Trump, is now being sued by one of Trump's co-defendants, a guy named Mike Roman. Mike Roman is a former Trump campaign official charged with racketeering, racketeering and conspiracy. Roman is accusing the Fulton County DA of withholding information that he says could prove an alleged affair between Fonnie Willis and a top deputy on the case, Nathan Wade. Wade was expected to answer questions about those allegations in divorce court yesterday, but the hearing was canceled after he settled that dispute with his ex-wife. CNN's Nick Valencia is tracking how these allegations could impact George's case against Donald Trump. I hope for y'all this week, I don't look like what I've been through. But today what he has brought you is his very flawed, hard-headed, and imperfect servant. It's been weeks since the Fulton County District Attorney spoke at her home church. Her first and only comment since allegations surfaced of an affair with her top deputy, Nathan Wade. It starts with me. The humble tone in stark contrast to the person who showed no fear in taking the former president head on with a historic indictment. This is a criminal investigation. We're not here playing a game. It's been three years since the elected Democrat launched her sprawling investigation into Trump and his allies accusing them of scheming to overturn the 2020 election. What made you show up here today, Mr. Chesborough? The prosecution of Trump and 18 of his allies have already netted major results. Four of Trump's co-defendants have pleaded guilty so far, agreeing to cooperate with prosecutors and testify against the former president and the remaining co-defendants who have all pleaded not guilty. Things seem to be moving fast, with Willis pushing for an August trial date for Trump and the remaining co-defendants. That is, until the bombshell filing accused her of profiting off a contract she gave as a public official to an alleged lover. Nathan Wade's credit card charges revealed in his divorce case show Willis was taken on two vacations by her top deputy. But beyond that, there has been no other evidence to support the allegations. A lot of what I've read is more of a distraction and not legally substantive. So is this a, a nothing burger? Is that where we're at here? I think it's a nothing burger. Robert James is the former DeKalb County District Attorney. But it only has to be passable to put in a motion and file it. And then once that motion is filed, the entire world can see it's running on all of the news stations. And at that point, the sideshow has taken over the circus. As a prosecutor involved in a high-profile case like this, you have to be aware that if there's anything that's lying around in the dark, it's going to come to the light. Republican lawmakers eager to undermine the credibility of Willis's case have zeroed in. Currently, there are at least three efforts in the Georgia legislature targeting Willis, including the launch of a special committee to investigate claims of wrongdoing. It's certainly symbolic. There may be some uh, evidence that comes out of these processes that are unfolding in the Georgia legislature, which could be exceptionally damaging, um, or it could be a lot of just political fodder and hot air. While legal experts say all this is unlikely to derail the criminal case against Trump, it has ratcheted up scrutiny of Willis. Critics digging up this interview from when she was on the campaign trail in 2020. I certainly will not be choosing people to date that work under me. Let me just say that. The irony lost on no one. A distraction for sure. 
but one Willis hopes goes away. But the distractions aren't going away. The problems are only piling up for Fannie Willis. We reported exclusively last week that she was expected to receive a subpoena to testify to respond to these claims for a hearing set for February 15th. We can now report she's officially received that subpoena, along with nearly a dozen other members of her staff, setting the stage for what could potentially be a very dramatic hearing. We'll get a preview of her arguments by Friday, which is the deadline that the judge has ordered her to write her legal brief. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Atlanta for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, new and disturbing details about what happens to children thought to have been kidnapped from Ukraine. Stay with us. Now for our buried lead stories we think are not getting enough attention. In this case, tens of thousands of children whom Ukraine says were abducted and kidnapped, essentially, and taken into Vladimir Putin's Russia for forced assimilation. It's considered a war crime under the Geneva Conventions. Today, members of Congress listen, listened as Ukrainian officials described what is happening to these children, some of them as young as one year old. Every day that passes is a list of more crimes against each individual. Adoption, followed by indoctrination, the imposition of new culture and language on children, Stripping them of their family stories and history not only heightens their vulnerability, but explicitly deprives these children their identity and nationality. The Ukrainian government is pleading for more help from the United States. CNN's Fred Plykin spoke exclusively with a top Ukrainian intelligence official who describes a dire but not yet hopeless situation. With Ukraine facing a Russian onslaught in many frontline areas, Kiev says continued U.S. military aid is more important than ever, Ukraine's military intel chief tells me. Shells are one of the most decisive factors in this war. It's about quantity, not so much the quality as the quantity. Next, there are assault aircraft. These are aircraft of the type that the United States has, like the A-10 Thunderbolt II and so on. This is what can really help inflict a military defeat. But further military aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance, as Democrats accuse former President Trump of derailing a possible compromise. Budanov says he's not concerned about Trump. He is an experienced person. He has fallen many times and gotten back up again. And this is a very serious trait. To say that he and the Republican Party are lovers of the Russian Federation is complete nonsense. But the Russians are currently on the offensive. On the front lines, we've seen Kiev's forces suffering a severe lack of ammunition, struggling to hold the line. Still, Budanov says he believes the tides will turn and Ukraine will attack. In my opinion, the main events on the battlefield will start happening sometime in the spring or early summer. Vladimir Putin wants Kirill Budanov dead. The Ukrainians say Moscow tried to assassinate him at least 10 times. Recently, Budanov's wife and several bodyguards fell ill after what Kiev says was poisoning by a, quote, heavy metal, but they survived. The military intelligence directorate is said to be behind an increasing number of cross-border attacks targeting key infrastructure inside Russia and the occupied territories. While never claiming responsibility, Budanov tells me Russians can rest assured the war has come to them. I believe that the plan includes all major critical infrastructure facilities and military infrastructure facilities of the Russian Federation. 
With Ukraine's offensive essentially stagnant, the Kremlin is currently feasting on rumors Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is close to firing his top general, Valery Zaluzhny, and possibly installing Budanov as his successor, the spy chief, Koi. Isn't that something that weakens the country if it appears as though the president and his top general are not on the same page? I am also the head of one of the military agencies. I personally have no conflict with anyone. You know, people were talking about you possibly being the new general. If I was appointed yesterday, would we be meeting? Fred Plykin, CNN, Kiev. And our thanks to Fred Plykin for that report. Coming up next, one state's emergency action underscoring just how severe the fentanyl crisis has become in the United States. Stay with us. In our health lead today, the city of Portland, Oregon, has declared a state of emergency in its fight against the drug fentanyl. Local and state officials say this step is necessary to combat rising overdoses and deaths. CNN's Josh Campbell's with us. Josh, what does this emergency declaration allow the city of Portland to do? Yeah, Jake, well, the governor of Oregon has described this as a crisis, as fentanyl has ravaged parts of the city of Oregon. She described the deadly drug as cheap, accessible, incredibly easy to overdose on. That's why we've seen this spike in overdoses. I'll show you here what this new emergency declaration does. There are many key points, uh, chief among them, increased access to treatment for those who are addicted, behavioral and health resources, as well as holding drug dealers accountable using uh, police in Oregon, as well as the Oregon State Police, uh, and uh, pl- and or police in Portland, I should say. That's notable because we know that there's often been this contentious relationship between the police and some members of the Portland City Council and the mayor's office and members of the community. It was that period of time where they had uh, reduced uh, millions of dollars from the budget called for it and then reversed course to add back police. Nevertheless, in this case, they're trying to get more resources for law enforcement on the street to try to go after these drug dealers. That's the pointy end of the spear. But all of this, Jake, is really about treatment. Listen here to how the governor described their plan. We are in the, in the process of analyzing the gaps in needed services across the state, not just in the region. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be seeing the results of those, and there'll be a clear plan of how we organize current resources. So a 90-day emergency declaration, Jake. Right now, they're identifying their priorities. We'll see how successful they are. And Josh, Oregon has seen this huge increase in opioid overdoses since fentanyl was among some hard drugs decriminalized in 2020? No, that's right. This was in 2020. Voters in the state of Oregon had voted to decriminalize uh, several hard drugs, including fentanyl, that obviously uh, caused a lot of criticism for those who predicted that something like we're seeing now might happen, where you would see people that are open using around the community. Uh, Now, proponents of that measure said that the goal should have been on treatment and not on criminalizing those who use the drug, because that often prevents them from getting jobs, from, you know, making a living. Uh, But nevertheless, that measure coming under fire now, as we see Uh, this plaguing the city, this deadly drug, Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Join me back here tomorrow. I'm going to speak one-on-one with Ambassador Nikki Haley. That's right here on The Lead, beginning at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. I'll be on Jimmy Kimmel Live later this evening. Our coverage continues now in the Situation Room. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.